Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we have a special message from Graham Daniels in 1 Kings 19. Elijah's spiritual depression. I bet you're cheerful about that. Um, But what we'll find in this story, and there's a handout that goes with it, are, are three big ideas for today. Number four is on the sheet, but I don't think we'll get there to next week. And I've put a set of questions at the bottom to help you think through, even as we're going through the passage this morning. But here are the three big ideas. This is a guy of significant conviction. If you have conviction that it's right to live under the authority of the God of creation who we meet through our Lord Jesus Christ, if you share that conviction this morning or are exploring that conviction, you'll understand this guy's story a bit. But he's a man of conviction, part one, who actually reaches his limits. He just gets worn out to the point of despair. So that's the man's story. Secondly, we'll see this morning from verses five through eight that physical realities really do affect spiritual dynamics. Do not assume that you're bulletproof from physical weariness. And then finally, what I hope is the beginning of the answer to a pretty universal problem, Elijah, verses eight to nine, goes back to basics, right back to where you need to go. He strips it all down to find the place that he needs to be to start to recover. So my prayer is, as we look at this passage and sing at the end of it with Jung and the musicians, that we'll think, yeah, I can walk out of this building this morning with a clear mind that uh, I reach my limits, uh, that I'm prone to being worn down, but if I go back to basics by meeting with God's people here this morning, and I go back to basics, I can walk into my life this week ready to go, ready to go as a human being in the world that God has put me. So let me pray that that might be the case as we look at this passage of scripture and sing together to reinforce it at the end. Heavenly Father, help us to not hear the voice of just a, a guy speaking from the passage of the Bible, but that your work, your words may do your work in the lives of those of us listening to this talk right now in such a way that for every girl or boy, woman or man who hears these words from 1 Kings 19, that we may know Christ better. And we ask it for his sake. Amen. Let me give you some background to this man of conviction, verses 1 to 4, who reaches his limits. It spreads over two chapters, 17 and 18, and let me give them to you briefly to get context on today. This is a guy of tremendous courage. In chapter 17 of 1 Kings, the ruler of the country is called Ahab. It's 900 years before Christ in the history of Israel, and the ruler is Ahab, and he's married to Jezebel. They have brought into the country beliefs and gods that are against the God of the Old Testament. They can't stand the God of Israel. They're called Baal and Asherah. They're the name of the gods, or some of the gods. And Elijah's really brave. He's really brave. In chapter 17 and verse 1, he goes to the king himself, risking his life, and says, Ahab, here's the deal. 
God hates what you're doing to our country and he's going to send a drought and the consequences of the drought are going to be obvious. There'll be no water and there will not be rain again until you and your wife stop using your royal authority to turn against the God who gave us life. That's a brave man, right? And I know immediately you could switch off and say, well, of course, I'm never a guy who could do that sort of thing. What we're talking about here is a woman or a man who has convictions that God really matters, and we must do our best to stand for the things of God. If you're thinking of being that person or you are that person, this is okay with you. This is a bit of you, I hope. He has these convictions. God is incredible to him in chapter 17 because when the drought comes, he finds different ways to look after Elijah. Elijah has to flee because the secret police are after him. So when he disappears, he's fed by ravens with food and by a brook that doesn't dry up with water. And when the water does dry up, he meets a woman who gives him food and drink. But in chapter 18, the Lord says, time to go, my friend. Here comes the biggest fight of your life. You are going to face a greater challenge now than you've ever been given by me, but I'm giving it to you. Notice, Elijah, I fed you and watered you and I've kept you safe from the authorities. Now we're ready to go, my friend. Let's go. And so what Elijah does in chapter 18, he goes straight to the king and he says, yeah, I'm back and this is what we're going to do. You bring all the leaders of your religion and I'll come on my own because I have no one to come with me in the country. And this is what we'll do. We'll make a big offering, a sacrifice, and your guys can call for fire from heaven. You can't light it yourselves. Your guys try and get fire to come from heaven to light the sacrifice. Then when they've done it, I'll do mine. Let's see who wins. And so just before where we get to in our part in 19 today, a ridiculous thing happens. He stands in front of the whole establishment of the country. I mean, what a winner this guy is, right? Soon we'll see him on his knees with despair. But you wouldn't know it now. If you looked at him at this moment in his life, you'd think, what a man. What a guy. You know that thing you can do in public? What a girl she is. Look at that. We have to do that, right? Sometimes you know how it is, right? You, you have to put it there. This guy says to the whole crowd, chapter 18, verse 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And then let the competition begin. And the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, they dance and they shout and they chant that the fire will fall. And he's really sarcastic. 18 verse 27, at noon, they've been going for hours, Elijah began to taunt them, shout louder, he said, surely he is a God. Now literally the next line, it says in, in the English, in the international version, perhaps he is deep in thought. I'm afraid it's a bit more rude than that. It actually says, perhaps they're sitting on the toilet. I know, I know, forgive me, it's a bit crass. But it's what the Hebrew says, but it's put more politely. Surely is a God. Perhaps he's sitting on the toilet or busy or traveling. 
Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Oh my word, he's in his majesty, isn't he? They're all, come on, come on. He's going, oh, maybe he's in the bathroom. And the people are looking and going, wow. And Ahab and Jezebel are going, oh no, come on. Give us a result. Then Elijah says, guys, give up. Um, If you like, get some water, pour it on my sacrifice. Pour some more. (laughs) Pour some more. God, send a fire. He steps forward and says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God and that I am your servant and have done all the things you commanded. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So the people will know that you are the Lord, you are the God, and that you are the ones who will turn their hearts back again. Then the fire fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil. It licked up the water in the trench. 39, when the people saw this, they fell on their faces and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said, get the prophets of Baal, let no one escape, seize them, slaughter them. And he turns to Ahab, verse 41, and he says, go home, go to your palace, 17 miles away, go home. The rain's about to fall. God has acted. You better listen. Go home. His wife was in the palace. Go back. Here comes the rain. In other words, here comes the new era in history. And then the last line says that Elijah, verse 47, runs all the way to Jezreel. He runs 17 miles. He's an athlete. But man, he is stalked. If the story ended there, you'd say, oh, my word, I want to be Elijah. (laughs) You'd say, if I'm not a Christian and I would be a Christian, I want to be like him. And you'd say, hey, if you've been a Christian a while, you know you're not like that, right? That's easy. (laughs) You'd say, well, I'm not like that, but I'd like a bit of that. Let me have a bit of that. Well, you wouldn't want a bit of the next part. Here we go, chapter 19. Verse 1, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel the queen sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So here he comes, palace, 17 miles, in he comes. Ahab's already back, he went by chariot, he gets back. The story's out. The guards, unbelievable. It was unbelievable. He was mocking the prophets of Baal. He made them look stupid. They're dead. Oh, here he comes. Here he comes. Good. Get Jezebel. Get, Get Jezebel. She doesn't even come. She sends a messenger. What's the message? They're trembling. The messenger's scared to death, I'm sure. Elijah, by this time tomorrow, you're like the prophets, mate, friend. You're dead. Don't mess with me. What, you're messing with those men who run my religion? I'm the queen. Don't even think, sorry, don't even think you can take me on. (laughs) Don't even think about it. You are dead. What will happen next? 
If we ended there, you'd need to read it, wouldn't you? What will happen now? I mean, the guys just wiped out 850 people and won the nation back. God has kept him for some time away from the secret police who are hunting him and fed him and clothed him and given him water. And now he's given him power from heaven. And now he's going to change the country because the rain comes. And here he goes, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, note Beersheba, 100 miles away. 100 miles away. Now, I'm sure he didn't run 100 miles. He must have got an Uber or something. It's a long way, but it's 100 miles away. He's scared, right? He is scared. He left his servant there. While he himself, verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom brush bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Take my life, Lord. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Oh. He's fallen apart. He's absolutely crumbled. His life's a wreck. But until that moment, in the public eye, he was a strong believer in God. The strongest in the nation, as far as people knew. How does this happen to us? One of the great reasons that God gave us a day of rest and a day to cut and a day to meet together with vulnerable human beings like oneself is to remember the truths of Scripture so that we can stop for an hour like this and not just go, 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 do, be, but that we can stop and say, who am I? What's my life like? What is good and what is tough? How do I recalibrate my life today? If you're working out the Christian faith from scratch or for new, here's a chance to learn some of the realities of how you stay in the race. If you've been going for some years or many years indeed, couldn't you easily acknowledge that there are moments, not irregular moments, when you say, Lord, where have you gone? What have you done to me? Why am I in this place? All she did was fight back, but he couldn't keep going anymore. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. Probably fear of some time, the emotional energy taken to go and stand before the king, then to go and stand in front of the country, then to ask God to do what he did, then to run to put it right, and he's only just fixed the big problem. Now he has to change the country, and he doesn't know he has any others on his team. And when she says, I'll kill you, his world collapses. For some of us this morning, of course, life is rich and good, and we're good. 
And that's fantastic. And somewhere in the extremity of life, where the great English poet says, joy and woe, W-O-E, joy and woe are woven fine, finely tuned together, good and bad, tough and easy, all mixed in. If it's tough today, listen close. If it's great today, listen close. Because we meet to remember what we do to be right with God. If this can happen to Elijah, it can happen to anyone. And I'm sure you know it can happen to anyone. Right, let's see the beginning of fixing it. I have two points today. I hope the second one particularly draws it in for you and then I'll pick up some more next time. Here's number two, point of three. Physical realities, verses five to eight, affect spiritual dynamics. Physical realities affect spiritual dynamics. Verse five. So verse four, I want to die. Let me die. I can't bear it anymore. Verse five. It seems so prosaic, verse 5, so basic, so unexciting. He lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Well, I hope the angel let him sleep a bit before touching him to say that. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He's run a hundred miles he ran 17, he's gone 100. He's famished. And God says, eat this, drink this. He ate and drank, then lay down again. So he sleeps, you see. Then an angel touches him, verse 7, a second time and says, get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Oh, how fundamental. I think grief might be a strong word. I thought about this word, but I think it's an accurate word. I know we attach grief to death. I understand that. And there'll be people in here today with the grief of, of death that they have faced or are facing. I understand that. So I don't mean grief flippantly. But grief is a slightly wider word than that. It just means hurting deep, feeling you've lost something. And that can be, of course, when things go wrong, when life's not right, when you feel alone and isolated and cut off and you don't know how to fix it. Space to grieve is really important. Before we start deciding how to fix it, which includes losing our own lives, just creating psychological space to grieve where body, spirit, mind, soul are all important is illustrated here in this man's life. God takes the initiative. He says, go to sleep. Now, eat a good meal. Drink plenty of fluids. Sleep again. And what's striking in his pain here, and I wonder if this might help you, it helped me in the preparation, is that the beginning of chapter 17, when Elijah has to flee until the time comes to take on the authorities and has to be alone, God provides a raven to bring him food and a brook to bring him water. At that point, of course, he's on the upward trajectory. He's going to take on in the name of God. 
At this point, he's really coming down the slope. And he's lower than a snake's tummy. But God hasn't changed. Do you you see what's happening here? Our lives are like that. In a broken world where creation is fractured, we are not immune if we are the people of God. No one is immune to the brokenness of creation. We all face it. When it comes, grief is important. And the important thing in it is that we must observe here that God never moved once from Elijah's side. God was for Elijah. When it looked fantastic and when it looked dreadful from Elijah's perspective, God never stopped looking out for him. Now this is really important because psychologically, emotionally, spiritually we don't believe it when the crunch comes. And don't you think it's slightly crazy? Don't you think it's slightly weird that we simply say, God, what have you done? You're not for me. You don't care about me. I'm going to leave you alone and go somewhere else to find my satisfaction. Then we feel miserable because we ran away from God because we thought it was his fault and he can't possibly love us. It must be our fault for things we've done. Then we run away from him. Then we find other ways to feel happy, short, quick, satisfying. Choose your poison. That makes us feel worse. He must really hate us now. We can't go back to him. Give up until six weeks later, something in your heart prompts you. Say, you stupid fool. Go back to the one who loves you anyway. Right? That pathology is desperate. It is the pathology of hell. It is 99% of the battle of Christianity. That pathological movement. And so for the last point of today, I'm going to take you to the third part of this morning's message. Verses 8 to 9, Elijah goes back to basics. So, to recap, 1 to 4, here is a man of conviction. He is convicted of the things of God, but he runs out of steam. And we learn that the grief is deep, and he just has to sleep and eat before he can do anything. It seems so ordinary but we are frail we are not superwoman we're flesh and blood and maybe for some of us it's a, it's a pointer today to say today to say you need to slow down here a bit and you just actually need to eat well sleep a bit and actually then you'll be in a position to go back to where you should be Spiritually. So let's see what happens in 8 to 9. It's a very simple line. It's actually second half of 8. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, the key to this line is that Horeb and Sinai are two nouns, two names for the same mountain. They're used interchangeably. Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, is the place where God gave the law to Moses for Israel in Exodus 19 through 34. It is the mountain where God, having taken them out of slavery through the desert, 
to the place where he tells them, this is who I am and this is what I have for you, Elijah heads for there. Remember, this is the Old Testament. So Christ hasn't come yet. So what the man does is to go to base six. He heads for the place where his nation met their God. The God that he believes in. The God that he has convictions for. The God whom, when he has laid down and wept and cried and wished he was dead and slept and ate and cried and wished he was dead and slept and ate and... Right, all right. Where do I go from here? I thought I was going to win. Being a Christian's fine, isn't it, when you're winning? But is it fine when you're losing? When you're not in control? Now's the time to learn. This is what I love about church. Singing songs, our last song, beautifully reflects what's going on in this passage because Jung said, have the song for us. Meeting together, this is almost part two of this little sermon. Actually creating space and time to get out of your bed and to come to church. Did you see that? Do you see that? It's really important because it gives us a chance to stop and breathe and sleep if you want. Uh, just lie down. He heads for the one place he knows that God met his nation. And the Ten Commandments as outlined in Exodus 20, don't begin with, you shall have no other gods before me. That's verse 2. Exodus 20 verse 1 says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. It starts with a promise and a reminder of what God had done. I am the one who brought you out of. Now let's live. You see, it's a, it's a grace thing as he gives the way to live. Now, you can see where this might go, right? In the last part of this address. Where do you run to when you wear New Testament glasses, spectacles? See, the Bible is like a bow tie. Does that word make sense? Does a bow tie make sense? Do you use that phrase? Yes. Yes? Okay, good. I wasn't sure. I should have checked. So a bow tie, the Bible is, think of a bow tie. At one end, the wide end, God, Genesis 1 to 11, sets up the whole world and teaches about how it is to be and what goes wrong. And then he narrows it down and down and down and down to the knot. He narrows it down through the kings of Israel, then through the prophets of Israel, down and down and down and down through the prophets until they're all in exile and it's over and the Bible goes quiet and it gets very, very narrow and then there's a knot in the center. They think it could be John the Baptist. They think it could be Elijah. It's the Christ. And in the center of the Bible, the Christ comes, dies on behalf of all sinners, takes the penalty for all sin that you and I have committed, dies on the cross while we were his enemies and when he smashes death to bits proves that he is the savior of the universe and then the bow tie goes out out from the Jews out to the Gentiles out to the world out to Wales out to Carlsbad 
out, 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 until the Lord returns. Right at the center is Christ, the revelation of prophet, the greatest prophet, of priest, the great high priest, and the greatest king in the universe. So we, I know I'm moving, it seems a bit odd, we're looking at the Elijah story from New Testament perspective. Do you see that? We look back through Christ. Now, how do you read Elijah through Christ? Well, at this point, it seems to me pretty straightforward. This very morning, run to Calvary. Flee to Calvary. There was once a man. And if you have a conviction about this Jesus Christ, and if you're here this morning seeking a conviction or having one, if you have a conviction that while you were God's enemy, he loved you and came to die for you, how much more when you're his daughter, or to change the metaphor, his wife, the bride of Christ, how much more do you think he looks at you this morning and says, I love you. Sometimes people rather cynically say because of human nature, when somebody has a new job, they say, well, they'll soon find out the honeymoon will soon be over. Or, you know, very early flourishes of love. Well, you know, it'll be fine, but the honeymoon will soon be over. Do you know there's one honeymoon that never ends? I mean, it's so impossible to believe we're now facing the lie of hell in front of our psyche. There's one, there's one honeymoon that can't end. There's one love that can't diminish. When God sent his son to die at Calvary, when he did something far greater than Elijah's battle here, Elijah points to Christ. He points to Christ, the one who takes on the authorities on his own, the one who's brave and goes all the way, the one who goes before the fight in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, take it away, take it away. But the one who follows it through and the one who goes to the grave and smashes it, that Christ looks at you this morning if you trust him and a honeymoon with him never stops. He sees you this morning, and this is the heart of the Christian gospel. When he looks at you this morning, if you have turned to Christ as the one who takes the penalty for your own sin, if you trust Christ this morning, he looks at you right now, whatever you did last night. Really, really, but we're at the heart of it whether you were the most wonderful Christian in the world at 10 o'clock last night or the worst you've ever felt in your whole life. This is the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means that you were the apple of his eye whichever state you were in last night. Now that is ridiculous, isn't it? That's why people say to Paul all the time and he talks about it in his epistles, He says, well, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Romans 6. Because it sounds as if you can do what you like. (laughs) But of course, you know that when somebody loves you that much, how could you treat them 
emotionally with such disdain. You know you can't, right? If somebody really cares for you, you'd have to be a sociopath. You'd have to be a psychopath, really, to take their love and pretend that you care, but do what you want. You know if you're a Christian this morning, it hurts literally like hell if you were doing the wrong thing last night. You know that, don't you? It's not a game. It kills you. You grieve over it. Do you not see what Elijah was doing? He was grieving. I lost my guts. I lost my courage, Lord. I've collapsed. I'm the worst prophet you ever had. I was so committed to living for you. And I tried and I really screwed it up. That's what he was depressed about. He lost. And when he lost, the pathology of hell kicked in. And it went something like this. God is against you now because you screwed it up. If I was you, I'd run away from God. When you run away, go and find pleasure somewhere because you won't find it from him because he's against you now. And just in time, he goes back to basics before that pathology kicks in. Because when that pathology kicks in and you find your own way of satisfaction because you can't go back to the one who definitely loves you because he's definitely for you because you think you screwed it up and you better push off and you better find your satisfaction somewhere else. You know what happens in the end? You have nothing to give anybody. You get insular and self-centered and sorry for yourself. And there's no witness for the wonder of grace that flows out into the world through people who are accepted regardless of their performance. That's how the gospel grows because people get the gospel. And what I love about Elijah here is that he flees in our language to Calvary. And when he flees to Calvary, there he is. Back with his Lord. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I dare not quite stop without pointing to point four because you'll think I'm cheating if you hear this address next week. Because at the, the next point is a chance to talk and listen. I'm going to warn you what's coming. When he gets to Horeb, he goes into a cave and spends the night. He sleeps again. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Oh, my dear me. God asks him this twice in the next few minutes. And both times he spews out. He vomits anger and rage and despair. Listen to what he says, verse 10. I have been very zealous. You've got to shout it. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. All the Israelites rejected your covenant tore down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Oh, he ran to Calvary. Do you think that put the anger to bed? I don't think so. And next week we see him pour out to God his despair. So you can come to church today, and you've done the right thing. Do the 10 o'clock test. Where are you on the scale? Anywhere in between. The right thing to do is to say, Christ loves me. I am the apple of his eye. All of hell tells me I can't be because I'm a sinner. And you are disregarding the gospel if you refuse to say, but the grace of God has paid the penalty. And this morning I can sing this last song with my heart soaring but I'm not pretending there won't still be grief 
waiting to be poured. That's why people offer to pray at the end of the service. And that's why we won't do justice to his spiritual depression unless we do more work on the rest of the passage, which is a trailer for next time. I know, Mark Foreman taught me that. <laughs> Friends, I, I, I'm not quite sure what the Holy Spirit through the scripture when we prayed that God's word would do its work for each of us. Of course, that's his work, not mine. Mine with Jung and the leaders of the service and the MCs. And all the musicians is to offer you scriptural truth this morning. Wherever the Lord has landed that for you, I hope you feel that you can take a next step in the light of it. For me personally, I think I want to end by saying the heart of the gospel most certainly is that God is so for you, he would die for you when you didn't even want to know him. How could he possibly, being the God of hundreds of millions of galaxies, not know that you would be a person who struggled with sin until he comes again? How would he not know that having saved you, he would have to come and live in you, and that he would be so committed to you that even when you really screw it up, he's gone nowhere, and that he loves you just the same as he did at the start, and that the honeymoon is never over, Therefore, what kind of fool are you if you run away from him and say, I can't go to him? Do you, do you see the illogical thinking? But of course, in life, the head has to line up with the heart and then the hands. You can't live without a heart that lines up to the truths of the head. I offer you the truths of the head. I hope it moves the heart so that you can walk out of this room today, however screwed up the week's been, and whatever happens next week, and say, I'm a child of Almighty God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is his spirit in me right now who is telling me, you are mine, my dear friend. Let's walk together. Find your satisfaction at Calvary, and I'm with you. And then we will see next week that we might scream out to God in our agony. He welcomes us to do so. Jung, let's, uh, let's sing our wonderful last song because this is a song which beautifully gives you the opportunity to sing in the light of what we've just heard. But if you don't mind because you're American and not British, <laughs> maybe look across the church a little bit and see other people because one of the great strengths of being together, not alone, is that you see all these human beings, women and men in the room. Friends, we're all vulnerable. We are all cut from the same weak, feeble cloth. And when we walk out of the door today having sung together, let us be that person who says, he is for me and he welcomes me and I will find my satisfaction at the cross of Christ today. Good for you coming here. Get out of here and know that you're the apple of his eye. Will you? Yes. Go for it. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.